Okay, so what are you going to do now then? So, um, as I mentioned, uh, I took the top 10 questions that came through the portal from the last two years of CVBR, mm -hmm. um, and instead of discussing it as we've been discussing here, I've tried to put some structure to my answers, um, and that's also available in the syllabus. And then finally, to give my top picks for some important or intriguing studies in 2018. Okay, go ahead. Sure thing. So, um, I've called this clinical controversies, but they're uh, typically the, the questions that you've had to ask, and this is my attempt at uh, trying to put some structure and organization uh, to my answers. So the first question, how do I choose between PCI and cabbage as a revascularization strategy? Now, ACS, we've all learned that the implications of ACS is sudden cardiac death, the problem of recurrent ACS, and the sequela of adverse ventricular remodeling. It's associated with increased morbidity, morbidity and mortality, and revascularization drives these uh, morbidity and mortality down. Really, the choice of cabbage versus PCI doesn't come into play in the setting of STEMI. It's more relevant in the setting of non-ST segment elevation ACS. Angiography is important because it confirms diagnosis, it guides subsequent antithrombotic treatments, identifies cupboard lesions, helps with risk stratification, and finally and importantly, it helps us identify the suitability for a particular revascularization strategy. So let's take first, um, and we've covered a bit of this with Dr. Prasad, but let's take first single vessel or double vessel disease with no proximal LED involvement. In this situation, cabbage can be re regarded as a class 2B indication and PCI as class 1. Let's now consider single vessel proximal LED or two vessel disease with proximal LED disease. In this setting, either cabbage or PCI is feasible. When you talk about left main and triple vessel disease, I think this is where the syntax score can be somewhat useful. In this situation, we stratify by the syntax score, and if it's low, cabbage or PCI is reasonable. If the syntax score is intermediate, cabbage is probably the favorable option, and obviously if the syntax score is high, you'd want to go with surgical revascularization. Similarly, with triple vessel disease, we can take the same approach. Again, with a low syntax score, either cabbage or PCI would be reasonable. With an intermediate score, cabbage would be a class one. In this case, probably PCI is something you don't want to go with. And similarly, with anything above 32, cabbage is the preferred revascularization strategy. The second question, what is the optimal duration of dual antiplatelet therapy? So we discussed the reality of acute coronary syndrome being an interaction between vulnerable blood on the one hand and the vulnerable plaque on the other. So supportive systemic antithrombotic therapy is important in the treatment. However, we've got to balance ischemic risk on the one hand with bleeding risk on the other. With antiplatelet therapy duration, if we want to drive down ischemic events, a natural question would be, should we just increase the duration? On the other hand, it's very clear if we want to decrease bleeding events, we need to decrease the duration of our antiplatelet therapy. So how do we go about this? Is there a way that we can stratify patients who might benefit uh, from uh, increased duration of therapy? The trials have suggested that, especially in ACS, there is a benefit from prolonged dual antiplatelet therapy with a decrease in ischemic events by 1 to 3%. But this comes at a cost, 
and the cost is an increase in bleeding events by approximately 1%. The DAPT trial came up with a score based on multiple clinical parameters, including, for example, cigarette smoking, prior MI, congestive heart failure, vein graft intervention, stent diameter, as well as a few others. Now, if the score is greater than two, you could consider increased duration of DAPT, but you need to weigh the bleeding risk. So a high score doesn't help you too much, but when the score is low, I think it gives more credence to discontinue that agent after 12 months. For ACS, based on Cure, um, uh, uh, Plato, and Triton Timber 38, we know that DAPT therapy for at least 12 months is efficacious. For ACS patients who are at high bleeding risk, you could consider discontinuing the P2Y12 inhibitor within six months or after six months. Question three, what are the preferred P2Y12 inhibitors? And I think we've discussed this. The preferred agents actually are going to be prasugrel and ticagrelor based on their efficacy in driving down ischemic endpoints. And this is mostly, prasugrel becomes an option in the invasive arm. Ticagrelor is the preferred agent over clopidogrel in those going non-invasive management of non-ST elevation ACS. Having said that, clopidogrel still has a very important role, and it's a preferred therapy in several uh, situations. STEMI patients undergoing fibrinolysis, patients with MI requiring triple antithrombotic therapy, in whom the use of prasugrel and ticagrelor is not re recommended because of increased bleeding risk, and it's not really been tested uh, with DOACs. Financial considerations, which may preclude the use of ticagrelor um, or uh, the other agents and any medical contraindications to prasugrel or ticagrelor. What is the issue regarding clopidogrel and proton pump inhibitors? Well, um, there seems to be an interaction, and this is based upon um, uh, inhibited PPI, certain PPIs being an inhibitor of CYP2C19. So the bottom line, what the consensus practice uh, guidelines suggest, um, is that there is a signal of harm with co-administration of these agents uh, with clopidogrel, so you might decrease the efficacy of clopidogrel in this situation. So we want to try to avoid agents like omeprazole. Pantoprazole and isomeprazole have less effect. Dexlanzoprazole and lanzoprazole have a marginal effect on the CYP2C19 uh, enzyme. When should I consider platelet function testing or genotyping? Now, I think everyone understands, and, and we're all on the same page, that high on-treatment platelet reactivity is associated with, is, with increased ischemic events post-PCI. In the ADAPT-DES trial, 50% of 30-day stent thrombosis is attributable to high on-treatment platelet reactivity. Independent correlation of adverse effects with high platelet reactivity um, was associated with probable and definite stent thrombosis at one year. Having said that, the Trilogy ACS trial did not show increased adverse effects on patients on, both, on either prasugrel or clopidogrel um, with regards to uh, 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 high platelet reactivity. So we're in a dilemma. Um, trying to study this is also tough because we're talking about a low event rate and the bias towards recruiting low-risk patients. So for now, the use of platelet function testing just blindly to inform or to stratify risk is not recommended. However, 
evidence does exist to recommend genotyping and phenotyping in a high-risk situation when an unanticipated event has occurred. What is the role of Kangalore in ACS? Kangalore is an ATP analog. It is the first intravenous P2Y12 inhibitor. It was studied in the champion group of clinical trials, which enrolled patients across the spectrum of ACS. If you want to take in aggregate uh, the take-home points for the role of Kangalore, it may be useful to guarantee platelet inhibition in ACS where ADP antagonist loading is inadequate or cannot be administered. Question seven. How do I change from one P2Y12 inhibitor to another? I've got a series of slides, but the bottom line, bottom line is to load. So if you want to go from clopidogrel to ticagrelor, you load with ticagrelor. If you want to go from clopidogrel to prasugrel, you load with prasugrel. If you want to go from prasugrel or ticagrelor back to clopidogrel, you load with clopidogrel. What about the other agents, prasugrel to ticagrelor or vice versa? It's a very rare situation. There's no data to support any strategy, but taking what we've learned in the previous slide, anecdotally, it's recommended to load with the agent of choice. What about Kangrelor to an oral P2Y12 inhibitor? If it's clopidogrel or prasugrel, you can administer these agents as soon as you've shut off the Kangrelor. You can start Ticagrelor anytime, and this difference is just based on the differences in pharmacokinetics. What about an oral P2Y12 inhibitor that's been given and you want to start Kangrelor? Well, you can start Kangrelor at any time because it's a reversible inhibitor. Nearly there, question eight. How do I manage post-ACS antithrombotic therapies for elective non-cardiac surgery? The difference between this question and what Mike talked about is we're talking about a post-ACS situation. So remember, the risk of stent thrombosis is higher if a stent is placed in the setting of an ACS or in the setting of surgery due to a pro-inflammatory milieu. For elective non-cardiac surgery, and if you've got a bare metal stent, you want to delay the surgery for at least 30 days, and for drug-eluting stent, at least six months. But if the delay in surgery, or the risk of delaying surgery, is outweighs the risk of stent thrombosis, you can bring that back to three months. Does long-term anticoagulation diminish ischemic risk? The simple answer is yes. In fact, um, very historical data uh, uh, from the WARIS studies have indicated warfarin has a significant anti-ischemic event. So why haven't we, haven't we been using it? We haven't been using it because it is a lot more cumbersome to use, number one. Number two, we also entered an era of potent antiplatelet medications, clopidogrel. So we've now spanned an era now entering the realm of DOACs. This has also been studied. And the outcomes of these studies have been sort of a little bit um, on the fence, with rivaroxaban having the best supportive data. For now, however, for an initial ACS presentation, aspirin and a P2Y12 receptor inhibitor should be initiated. Currently, no role for adding an oral anticoagulant to the regimen for secondary prevention. Some countries outside the USA, however, um, do advocate the addition of a low-dose rivaroxaban as an option for further secondary prevention. Question 10, the top one and probably the hardest one, what are the options for and the role for triple oral antithrombotic therapy? Well, this includes an anticoagulant agent on top of a dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, none of the available studies have included patients on prasugrel ticagrelor, so really dealing with clopidogrel in this situation. So the need for anticoagulation, those with prosthetic heart valves, they're all gonna be on warfarin, 
For other indications, it could be warfarin or the DOAX. So we're in a situation of anticoagulation plus something. So triple antithrombotic therapy. The balance of efficacy and safety with TOTE is tipped towards excess bleeding. In fact, the observational data indicates that TOTE is associated with a manifold increase in major bleeding compared to DAPT alone. So the consensus practice guidelines. So stroke and bleeding risk needs to be assessed, and, and our experts suggest we should look at the CHAS2 VAS score on the one hand and the HAS-BLED score for bleeding risk on the other. We need to assess also whether this is a stable situation, which Mike talked about, versus an ACS situation. The guidelines suggest in patients with a high risk of stroke and bleeding, but a low risk of stent thrombosis, you could try warfarin plus clopidogrel. This was further supported by the WOST study. Remember, warfarin also has anti-ischemic effects based on the WARAS-2 studies. At patients, unfortunately, at high risk of stent thrombosis, you might be better served with a short course of TOTE. This is in your uh, syllabus, and it goes through four different scenarios. Low CHADS2, low HAS-BLED score. If the patient can tolerate TOTE, we can do that. If they have a high bleeding risk, minimize the duration of TOTE. If they have a high CHADS2 VAS but a low bleeding score, then tolerate TOTE. This one is the situation where you're just screwed. We're so, we, you're sort of damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And I don't think there's any really good answer. There's nothing that supports it in the data. So the usefulness of DOAX in TOTE is unknown, okay? But this is an interesting area to study because it has, uh, you know, we know that there's improved safety and efficacy with the DOAX versus warfarin in other populations. So I'll finish off with my top picks. This is twofold reason for doing this. One, for those who have come to this course, because you know what, I want to review but I also want to know what's latest and greatest. And two, I want to give the fellows in the audience my strategy of how I keep up to date with the literature. What, how do I put things together and how do I pick the trials that I, that I make notes on? Let's start off with Artemis. Artemis trial uh, was a copay intervention versus usual care amongst ACS patients. Um, and they looked at outcomes at one year. Um, they enrolled 10,000 patients, so a big study. The intervention arm provided a voucher for either clopidogrel or ticagrelor. Interestingly, um, it did affect the prescriber's preference for drug. Okay? With the voucher, the prescriber was more likely to prescribe ticagrelor. However, interestingly, there was no effect on one-year outcome. When you look at the data more closely, one in three in the intervention arm didn't use their voucher. So the take-home message here is yes, we can influence the prescriber side of the fence, but it's so important to try to establish mechanisms to create an environment of medical compliance. So this is how I put together my information. I talk about the hypothesis, the format of the study, intervention, control, etc., And I try to summarize the validity of the trial within two or three slides. And all these, what I call as trial cards, are available in the syllabus for your leisure. You will not be examined on this at all, okay? You will not be examined on this. Treat, I thought this was an interesting trial. This is a trial of patients who were undergoing fibrinolysis for STEMI, and it was looking at delayed initiation of ticagrelor. This study enrolled 3,500 patients, and over 90% of them were pre-treated with clopidogrel. 
the median time where they received ticagrelor was 11 hours. Interestingly, from a safety standpoint, ticagrelor was non-inferior to clopidogrel. So this is really interesting news, because for the first time, we're looking at one of the preferred P2Y12 inhibitors in the setting of lytic therapy. It's certainly not ready for prime time in guidelines, but I'm hopeful that the future will unfold with further investigations as to the role of ticagrelor in the patient treated with fibrinolysis. SWAP4. SWAP4 was a small study, 80 patients enrolled, and this is getting at some of the evidence behind loading patients uh, with a different P2Y12 inhibitor. In this study, they took patients with recent ACS, and they've been on clopidogrel and aspirin for 30 days. Then what they did was they took them off the clopidogrel, got them on ticagrelor, they waited for seven days, and then they randomized to four different groups. The four different groups were predicated on how they got them from ticagrelor back to clopidogrel. Some groups, there was a de-escalation. In other groups, there was loading. In some groups, this occurred over 12 hours. In other groups, over 24 hours. The take-home point was that ticagrelor was associated with lower platelet reactivity compared to clopidogrel, regardless of the groups, number one. Number two, there was high on-treatment platelet reactivity when you used a de-escalating approach to switching. And this observation was mitigated by a loading dose. So this is a study that supports our practice, that you should load a patient with a new P2Y12 inhibitor if you're thinking about switching. The Odyssey Outcomes trial. I think this is, this is my favorite trial, actually, right now. So this is looking at the PCSK9 inhibitor, arilusumab, um, uh, versus placebo, this time in an ACS setting. Big, big trial, 20,000 patients across 1,300 sites in 60 countries. Okay? And it was looking at MACE uh, in patients, already on high-intensity statins. So they took patients, they sort of trained them in with two to 16 weeks of high-intensity statins, and then randomized to receiving the PCSK9 inhibitor versus placebo. And arilusumab did impact MI and survival. So this is astounding. So we've got patients already on the guideline-directed aggressive therapy, and despite that, this inhibitor was able to drive down ischemic endpoints. This parallels the findings for, from FORIA, which was presented at ACC 2017. So I think we're in an era, an exciting era of cardiology, where new therapies may really shift the paradigm of treatment in acute coronary syndrome and ischemic heart disease at large. Finally, EAGLES. EAGLES was a study that looked at 8,000 patients who were smokers and was really looking at the safety of the use of aggressive anti- or smoking cessation pharmacotherapy um, in this setting. It looked at verniclean, uh, bupropion, nicotine replacement therapy versus placebo. The bottom line is that there was no increased MACE across all groups. Now, albeit these patients were stable patients, non-ACS patients, but it behooves us to be sensitive to the fact that after we have our patients convalesce from their acute coronary syndrome, and we get them into the outpatient practice, it is so important to be aggressive about smoking cessation because that is a major risk factor, not only for cardiovascular disease, but for many other systemic diseases.
So with that, I close, and I really greatly appreciate your attention for this afternoon.